Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, July the 28th, 2023. It is currently 1.04 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Well, are you ready to once again study the proper distinction of law and gospel? That 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 comes across to that that's that's too that sounds too much like a normal podcast. Hey, you want to study some law and gospel? That does that, that that doesn't work either. Hey, it's time. Now that sounds like I'm hyping it. Okay, I don't know the correct way to say this, but grab a notebook, grab something to write with. And let's once again explore the subject of law and gospel and try to understand the proper distinction between law and gospel. Quickly, let me remind you, we started this series in October of 2022. We're now probably well over 90 hours of content. Please go back and listen to everything we have done in this series. The easiest way to find the series is to download the Church One app, That's Church, O-N-E, Church One. Once you download the app, do a search for Theology Central. That's us. Choose us as the broadcaster. That basically turns the Church One app into the Theology Central app. Isn't that awesome? And then you can look for the series, uh, Understanding Law and Gospel, and you can go back and listen to everything. I said it then. I will say it now. It is the most important series I have ever done. It may be the most important subject I have ever discussed in so many ways because it is so critical. If you mess up law and gospel, ladies and gentlemen, you destroy the gospel. If you don't have a proper distinction between law and gospel, you end up with something other than the true gospel. In fact, what you end up with is a gospel, listen, the law masquerading as gospel because you're still going to think it's the gospel because, well, you're a Christian. You're going to still be telling people we're saved by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone. But, but, You're going to be adding law. You're going to be injecting law into your so-called gospel so that your gospel will just basically be law masquerading as gospel. And a gospel, listen, that is really law, is not helpful. It's damaging. It's destructive. It's damning. We've got to get back to a proper understanding of law and gospel, it, not only from a very important perspective when it comes to salvation and, and justification, but even from a hermeneutical standpoint, you've got to understand when you see a text, is that law or is that gospel? And then understand what that means. So I, all I can do is beg, plead. If I could, I would pay you money to go back and listen to all of it, but please do that. But at some point in the series... Everything kind of went wrong. And so we're doing now what we're calling a law and gospel redo. We're going back to the beginning. Now, the book 
that we are utilizing, we've been utilizing this from the very beginning, is God's no and God's yes, the proper distinction between law and gospel by C.F.W. Walther. Yes, I understand there's a much larger version, really, but this is kind of the, the cliff notes. This is the summary. And I think it's much easier to put this into the hands of, of everyday people who may not want to read some gigantic book. This is small, short, succinct, to the point, and I think very, very valuable. God's no and God's yes, the proper distinction between law and gospel by C.F.W. Walther. It contains what? I think 25 theses, theses on the proper distinction of law and gospel. And we used it. We made it to like thesis number 11. Now in our redo, we're going back. We've covered thesis number one, thesis number two. Today we come to thesis, thesis number three. Thesis number three, which reads like this. Rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general and of theologians in particular. It is taught only by the Holy Spirit in the school of experience. I do believe it is in the school of experience. It is in the school of living out your Christian life. It's in the school of living out your Christian life and being very open and honest with yourself that you will begin to realize, man, I've got to have a proper distinction between law and gospel, or I don't understand Christianity. I don't understand my life because all I see is failure, 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 sin, 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 sin. I see sin in the church. I see sin in other Christians. I see sin in me. We Nobody keeps God's law perfectly. How do I understand all of this? And a proper distinction between law and gospel is essential. But to, to understand that law and gospel, to rightly distinguish between law and gospel, it is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general. It requires years of work and study to figure, to master the art of rightly distinguishing between law and gospel. Don't think you're going to figure it out today or tomorrow. It's a lifetime of reading and studying and trying to understand it. But it's something that you should be pursuing with everything that is in you, and we're trying to help you do just that. Now, remember, for the Redo series, what we are doing is we're utilizing Issues ETC. They are currently doing a series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. We're utilizing their programs. Uh, and just remember, first of all, you can subscribe to Issues ETC on every podcasting app under the sun. Please do that. Issues ETC. Listen to them all the time. I don't always agree with all of their theology because they're Lutheran, but I agree with much and I definitely love their uh, understanding of the of the proper distinction between law and gospel. But because it's a radio program, they have commercials. So what we're doing is we're dedicating each episode of our podcast to only reviewing each segment between the commercials. So we start when a segment begins, we end when they go to commercial, and then that's it. And then the next episode, we'll cover the next section. The reason we're doing it that way is because it makes these episodes shorter and we're trying to remind everyone. We're trying to get everyone caught up. So hopefully that all makes sense. But are you ready? Man, that was that's seven minutes. I, I hate trying to review all of that, but I'm trying to make sure everyone knows exactly where we've been, where we're going and what we're doing. So, but let's look without any further delay. We're going to go to a recent episode of Issues ETC, where they're going to introduce and begin to discuss thesis number three from God's No, God's Yes by C.F.W. 
Walther. Here we go. Stanzas 11 and 12 of a hymn penned by 16th century reformer Martin Luther. These are the Holy Ten Commands. Well, distinguishing law and gospel, according to C.F.W. Walther, is the most difficult and highest Christian art. Even some of his students at the time, when he articulated this thesis, said, can this really be true? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. live on this Monday afternoon, May the 22nd. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be spending some time with Pastor Will Whedon in our series on CFW Walther's theses on law and gospel. Then, in Hour 2 of Issues Etc., we're looking forward to Sunday morning, the day of Pentecost, with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Will Whedon is Assistant Pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois. He formerly served as Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands, and he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, welcome back. Hey, thank you, Todd. So let's jump right into this third thesis, and this is the one that does usually catch people up short because they're walking through this subject, and they think, I got it. I think I understand what Walter's talking about. I think I can tell the law from the gospel, but he says to rightly distinguish law and gospel is the most difficult and highest Christian art, and for theologians in particular, it is taught only by the Holy Spirit in combination with experience. Yeah, and when he lays it out like that, it's going to become very clear. He's not talking about the contours that, you know, the doctrinal distinctions that he's just laid out. He's like, that's not too hard. Uh, He's like, a little kid can get this, right? I mean, there's a difference between the Ten Commandments, thou shalt, and the Apostles' Creed telling you what God has done for you. The distinction between what we're supposed to do and what God promises to do for us, this is not difficult to grasp with your head. But the big challenge comes in the wrestling inside of the conscience. And that's really what he's talking about when he says this is such a hard area. It's hard for the individual Christian to deal with in themselves, and it is especially hard for those who are the incumbents of the Office of the Holy Ministry to know how to help their people deal with this conscience battle that happens. Okay, I'm going to disagree a little bit here. Now, I completely agree. The real battle is in your conscience. The real battle is struggling with this idea that you know you're, I think the more sensitive you are to the things of God, the more, I think the, the more you're growing spirit. So I'm, so first I'm going to say, I'm going to start with that, what their, their perspective. I'm going to say, I do agree in part, but then I'm going to get to my disagreement. So let's start with where I agree. I do agree that in the conscience, a great battle rages when it comes to the proper distinction between law and gospel. And here's what I think happens. If you are growing as a Christian, you're studying your Bible, you're pursuing it, you're praying, you're really growing, you're becoming stronger in your Christian life, you become more and more sensitive, more and more aware of your failure and your sin. 
I, we, I, I say this all the time. The more you see of God, the more you see of yourself. The clearer picture you get of God, the clearer picture you get of yourself. And the picture you will get will be, woe is me, I am undone. I am a sinner. Then you will be struggling in your conscience going, how can I be such a great sinner yet claim to be a follower of Christ? How can I fail so much? How can I desire so many wrong things? Because you're going to become more and more sensitive to the sin in you and it will break you and it will make you struggle because you'll be like, what do I do? What do I do? You'll know in your mind the proper distinction between law and gospel and you know in your mind you should flee to the gospel, but you'll start questioning going, I don't know. And I, am I really forgiven? I, I I can't even forgive myself. I, I And you're just going to find yourself almost trapped and maybe starting to spiral out of control emotionally and mentally because you'll just feel like a total failure. So that's, I do agree that the battle happens in the conscience, but I'm going to disagree here. I think even the basic concept of the law is telling us what we're supposed to do and the gospel is telling us what God has done for us. Even though that is simplistic, when we read the Bible, when we talk about Christianity, we, we talk about salvation, we inevitably almost want to infuse some level of law into the gospel because by nature, we are law-based. Everything in our society, whether from the home to work, everything is law-based, law-based, law-based. So even though I think that the constantly making sure we're making the right distinction is one of the most difficult and the highest art, because not only do we have the problem with the conscience, we have the problem that we are just law-based thinkers. And therefore that thinking impacts, you know, even when we think we know the right distinction, it impacts us because, well, we have a tendency to just inject a little bit of law into the gospel. And that's what we have to be careful of. Happens between the law and the gospel. I just found the, the context was fascinating too. This is 1884. And this particular lecture he delivered on the 24th of October. He doesn't do anything on the 31st of October. I wonder why that is. I'm assuming they're having a big Reformation Day celebration or some such. And then he picks up again on November 7th. And in two lectures, he tries to unpack how this battle inside the conscience is waged. And as he's doing it, he starts out with this, the importance of humility uh, when we're dealing with the word of God. He says, the more truly learned a person is, the humbler he is, for he knows how much he is still lacking within what narrow boundaries his knowledge is confined and how much still remains unexplored. That we got to stop right there. That is so important. If you are a Christian and you're truly learning more, you should not become more arrogant, you should become more humble. But there's always this weird thing that happens for some. The more they learn, the more they know, the more arrogant, more condescending, the more just, they. oh, I, I, can I say it? They become a spiritual jerk. And I have been a spiritual jerk multiple times in my Christian life. I have been a spiritual jerk too many times. So there, there isn't an element where the more you learn can puff you up, but that's where you're, that's because you're learning 
I, I don't know really what always makes the distinction. I, I thought maybe I had some profound way to help you make the distinction, but what you have to ask yourself, I, I'll state it this way. If your learning is making you more arrogant, condescending, basically turning you into a spiritual jerk, your learning is all in the head and it's not really in the heart. It's not, it's not getting beyond just puffing you up. You've got to figure out why that learning isn't. And if it's spiritual theological knowledge, because somehow you are not, you're not taking that knowledge and looking at yourself. You're taking that knowledge and focusing on everyone else. You're looking at your knowledge and you're like, that person knows less than me. That person is wrong. Instead of looking at taking that knowledge and applying it to your own life, right? The more knowledge you have, think about it this way. The more knowledge you have, should be more mirrors around you, not more windows so that you can go check out everyone else and say, look how stupid they are. It should be more mirrors going, whoa, man, look how wrong I've been. Look at how much I did not know. So I, I think that's very important, but let's see where he's going to take this. That's certainly true, right? The more you become familiar with a given area, the more you learn to stand in awe of how little you actually have been able to know for certain about it. He uh, goes on, basically quoting Luther here. Accordingly, Luther addresses this word of warning to every lazy student. Attende lectioni. That is, keep on reading. You cannot read too much in the Holy Scriptures. For what you read, you cannot fully comprehend. What you understand, you cannot teach too well. And what you are teaching well... You cannot put into practice too well. Stop and think about that. Isn't that so? Okay, that, uh, okay, two things going on here. First, someone just made a comment. It says, I'm wondering if when you are learning from the school of experience, it would be humbling because the school of experience often presents our, sh our, our, our shortages, our shortcomings, our, our failure. That is true. When you're really, when you're taking all of that theological knowledge and then you're, you're, you're living it out in real life, you're, the school of experience is going to kind of boom. It's going to knock you around. It's going to make you realize, whoa, whoa, I don't have this all figured out. That's, that's really true unless you can convince yourself that you, you do. All right. Now let's go back to what he just said. He's getting ready to explain it. So true. Everything that we read in the scriptures, I mean, there's so many mysteries there as we're reading along that we have to confess, I don't know. And then when you seek to believe it and put it into practice, you find a, a great difficulty. And when you're trying to teach it to others, a great difficulty. As he pointed, especially with the gospel, you're teaching something that's sort of uh, contrary, not native to human thinking. And that always makes it a, a, a huge challenge. I do agree. The more you read, the more humble you should be because you should be more and more confronted with things that you you don't really understand. You should be confronted with the mystery that surrounds the text and the compl complexities. You should also be confronted with the thinking that is not your thinking. But for some weird reason, many Christians, I think they're so conditioned that you read the Bible and just say, it makes sense and there's no problem and there's no, like you're not allowed to say, whoa, this makes no sense. Wait, this bothers me. Wait, 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 what is going on? I think the, if you're willing to read more and read in the most open, honest, transparent way, then you will be humbled because you will be able to acknowledge, I don't understand this. You'll be able to be acknowledged. 
you'll you'll you should be able to acknowledge not only do I not understand it, this seems troubling and bothers me. And then you'll also be like, I don't know if I agree with that way of thinking in my mind because you can be honest. So the more you read, the more you should see. And the more you see, the more humble you should become. And that's how it should work. He takes up the example of David and how David in Psalm 51 is a reflection, of course, upon his great sin with Bathsheba and then seeing to the murder of Bathsheba's husband, and then being confronted by the prophet Nathan. What does Walter have to say about David and the application of law and gospel? Well, you know, uh, I remember hearing a lecture by uh, Dr. Ken Corby where he, he picked up this very point, which Walter is driving home here. It comes across a little bit better in the German than it does in English. Psalm 51, verses 10 and 11, you know, the we know it well. I created me a clean heart of God and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. So beautiful prayer of the offertory that uh, in many of our churches is sung every single week. But in the German, the renew a right spirit within me is like a gewiss, a certain spirit within me. Walter perceptively points out David is struggling in this psalm to believe the absolution he has heard from Nathan, right? When he confessed, I mean, Nathan confronted him. (laughs) The man who has done this deserves to die. Nathan, thou art the man. And then David's response to this basically after Nathan lays bare the sin publicly there in front of the court, David confesses. I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan does speak a word of absolution to him. The Lord also hath put away or transferred your sin. You are not going to die. Maybe the way he said that was what really set David off. You are not going to die. But as David thought about it and realized, oh my goodness, I not only took this man's wife, he was my loyal soldier. I had him murdered, and then I lied about it, and I tried to pretend that this was all on the up and up, and I was actually honoring my soldier and doing him a favor by taking his wife into my my family. The more he thought about it, the more he began to despair that he could ever be forgiven for so great a sin. And Walter says, It's characteristic of Christians to regard the scriptures as the true infallible word of God. But when they are in need of comfort, they find none. They cry for mercy. They supplicate God on their knees. God made David taste the bitterness of sin. God did not permit these misfortunes to afflict David because he had not forgiven his sin, but in order to keep him from falling into another sin. Naturally, a person dead in sin thinks, why was David so foolish as to torment his mind with the sin that had been forgiven by God? A person reasoning like that makes the gospel a pillow for his carnal mind to rest on. He continues his sinful life and imagines that he will, after all, land in heaven. His gospel is a gospel for the flesh. Ouch! I mean, but that's a powerful proclamation. Okay, now... Uh, I, I struggle a little bit with this because I know what Walter's trying to say. See, once again, he's worried that someone would use the gospel as a pillow for their carnal head. Very poetic. Okay. Very powerful. But here's the problem. 
When you say that God let him taste the bitterness of his sin so he wouldn't sin anymore, are you saying David didn't sin anymore? Because we know David continued to sin. Because no matter how, this, I don't, this is what drives me so crazy about this subject sometimes. It's maddening. Because sometimes when you're dealing with the proper distinction between law and gospel, you feel like you get in these circles, right? You're like, oh, yes, they're, they're, we've got the proper distinction. I mean, then we, inadvertently, we kind of run back to kind of a law mentality because we get nervous. We get scared. Oh, someone's going to find comfort for their carnal head. Oh, no, 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 no. If you do that, you're not going to end up in heaven. Whoa, 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 now, wait a minute. What are we doing now? What are we doing? Because see, we're so worried that someone's going to find peace and comfort in the gospel that somehow they're going to keep sinning that we want to then ex- basically take the gospel away from them. But that... I. I don't, I can't stand that because here's the deal. You, you say God lets you feel the weight of your sin so that you won't sin anymore. You can feel the weight of your sin all day. It doesn't mean you're going to stop sinning because as long as you have a sinful nature, you're going to continue to sin. I don't care how bad you feel. I don't care how much guilt you feel. I don't care. You're going to continue to sin in some way, shape, or form. It's it's so weird how Christians seem to be incapable of admitting that. We're like, well, he won't commit that sin ever again. Well, he's going to commit that sin and that sin. And wait, is he never going to commit that sin again? Let's just let me let me just let me just see something here. Let me let me let me let me just remind myself here. I don't want to give a fraudulent number, so let me just look here really quick. Let me just look here. All right, all right. Just let me look here. I'm just going to look this up in real time. All right, okay. I'm going to look here. All right, here we go. All right, um, King David had, I believe, eight. Wives. He had eight wives, I believe, if I'm correct. All right. You can verify that. Now, if he had eight wives, was he continuing to sin? If he ended up with eight wives, did he continue to sin? Was that polygamy a sin? Is that adultery? Because can you only be married to one woman, right? So then the other seven, who was the real wife? Who are the other seven? Are they real wives? No. So then was he not continuing the very sin that he just got in trouble with and he felt the weight? Was he continuing the sin or not? Well, this is a man after God's own heart, after his, because we paint this picture and our preaching, he was broken. He wrote Psalm 51 and it, we almost like he rode off into the sunset to never sin again because he felt the weight of his sin. He felt the, now I have no problem saying God lets us feel, to me though, I think God lets us feel the weight of our sin. He lets us feel the burden of our sin so that we will flee to Christ. Not that like, hey, we'll just stop sinning because we're not going to stop sinning. Now, see, immediately someone will say, oh, but now you're making an excuse and you're telling me that you can just go on and sin. I'm not trying to make an excuse. I'm trying to deal with the reality. I'm trying to deal with the reality here, ladies and gentlemen. You can, you can, you can 
whip yourself. You can punish yourself. You can, you can feel, you can, you can publicly shame yourself. You can humiliate yourself. You can do, you're still going to sin in some way, shape, or form and thought word and deed by what you do and by what you leave undone. I don't know why the Christian world has so many problems with that reality. You say, well, but if you feel the weight of that sin, you'll sin less. Okay. I'm all for sinning less. I want to sin less. Do you want to sin less? But you're still going to sin. You're still going to sin. I think David realizes in Psalm 51, my own take. Now, we've talked about Psalm 51. If you go back and listen again to our series on law and gospel, we spent a lot of time in thesis number three covering Psalm 51. Um, we, we spent a lot of time at church. I think it was in Wednesday evening service, I think, spending a lot of time wrestling with the meaning of Psalm 51. I think in Psalm 51, David acknowledges his sin, but he acknowledges the sin problem is deep inside of him. It, he was conceived in sin. It's in his nature. It's in his heart. And the only way for this to ever truly be fixed, it's almost like he's just praying for it. I need a new heart. I need a new spirit. I need this. Now, the question is, do we ever get that? We ultimately get it when we, we no longer have a body of flesh and we receive a glorified body, but we're still, uh, we're always going to have the sinful nature. I don't know. You, 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 can, you can share your thoughts. Let's continue. Surely you've had this experience, Todd, right? You've heard the word of, of forgiveness from your confessor. It assures you. And then you go home and Satan in the middle of the night brings the sin right back up into your mind, flashes it right before you and says, you are doomed. You are so doomed. You are toast. You are headed to hell and you know it. And this kind of experience is one that only Christians who are alarmed by their sin ever get to experience. And then it really is a huge battle to hold tight to the absolution. Now, I do agree this is a battle. This is 1,000% true that once you hear the wonderful words of the gospel, that it is finished, you are forgiven, your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, have been dropped into the deepest ocean, you are now declared holy and righteous. Yes, but you are constantly, I think, again, the more I think you grow in your Christian life, the more you'll sometimes struggle because you'll be like, but I'm still a sinner. I still sin. I still sin. And it can be maddening. So I, I think, I, I do agree this is a struggle. And you say, well, what do you do? How do you find peace? I think all you can do, it's not something that you can do. All you can do is rest in what is done. You just have to remind yourself of what, of how complete God has saved you. That yes, you're still a sin. You're still a sinner. Yes, that sin should bother you, but you, 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 constantly, rem- you not even really remind yourself, you just, rem- I, I guess you remember, maybe you remind yourself of just what is done, what God has done for you. All your sins have been paid for. They're paid for. You're declared perfectly righteous and holy. You got to constantly see yourself in your positional standing before God. All right, let, let's, let, let's see where else this goes. Why does he go this direction when 
trying to drive home for these students how difficult it is to rightly distinguish, and by this he means not only know, but also apply law and gospel. Because when you are in the midst of these Anfechtungen, these uh, trials and tribulations, where your sin is being pressed by Satan up into your face, it is almost impossible to simply remember, wait a minute, this is a word of law. What Satan is holding up to me here is just law, and the law will always show me my sin. But there is another word which I must use to counter this word of law that is afflicting me here. I must cling to what my Savior has done for me. I believe it is particularly important. He really wanted pastors to get this because of its importance at the deathbed. We'll get to that in a little bit. But that's where it really does come into full play. Because there, as a person is dying, so very often, Satan just sets up his little VCR. He plops in his choice moments from the person's life and has them flash in front of their eyes one after the other. And the effect of remembering all of these sins is so devastating, so horrifying, that in that moment, to believe that your righteousness is Christ alone, that it is not what you have done that will save you, but it is his grace alone that will save you. Satan wants you to just give up right then and there and say, I'm nothing but a child of hell, and that's where I'm headed. And Walter wants his students to understand this is a real struggle for the people of God. And if they are going to be real theologians, it's going to end up being a real struggle that they will know in their own consciences too. He's also pointing out, he doesn't, Put too fine a point on it, but he he points out that this is uh, Satan misapplying at least the law in this case. Mm-hmm. Right. I I, I think I, I've used the example before from uh, Johann Gerhardt. He he says Satan has two mirrors, if you will, to magnify. He uses one. It's like a magnifying glass, which he holds over your sin after you've sinned. He uses a minimizing mirror, which he holds over the sin, which he's trying to get you to sin. So it's like he, he tries to picture the sin to you as no big deal. And then once you've done it, he loves to blow it up so big. But against however big Satan wants to blow up sin, you have the blood of the Lamb of God, which atoned for the sin of the whole world, and which is one single drop of his blood is more precious than the sins of the entire world. And holding on to that and learning to believe that in our crises of conscience is what this thesis is particularly trying to drive toward. And Walter just doesn't want them making the mistaken notion that they've taught correctly on law and gospel when they've made the distinctions clear. He wants them to understand, guys, this is really, really hard to hold on to when everything is falling to pieces around you. And this is something he himself tasted and knew from experience. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part three of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. On the other side, Walter has another example, this being St. Peter. And we'll have to stop right there. A couple of things that I thought was rather profound. One, Satan, he says Satan does this. I think we do it in our own minds, our, our own sinful nature does this, that when it comes to 
um, our, the sin that we may want to commit, the sin that we may be tempted to commit, we minimize it. We minimize it. We're like, okay, well, it's not that bad. Okay. And we kind of minimize it. We try to justify it. But once we've committed the sin, then our conscience, our uh, Satan, whatever you want to put, it's magnified a million times. So on one, we're, we're kind of, we're kind of tempted or led to commit the sin because we minimize it. And then after we've done so, we've so magnified it that we cannot find rest, peace, and hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why you have to look to the greatness of what Christ did, not the greatness of your sin, and realize the greatness of his blood, his sacrifice, and his righteousness is far greater than any sin you have ever committed and find rest in that. Or you will be tortured in your conscience and you will not have peace. And someone in the in the comment sections said that's really profound that the moment uh, that moment that the life flashes it would be hard to look to Christ's finished work yes at the moment when you, your, your life flashes before your eyes and depending on the sensitivity of your conscience depending on I think again the more the more time you spend in God's word the more time you read you study I think the more it should in theory make you more sensitive it's forming your conscience your conscience is formed by the word of God I, again, I know I keep repeating it. The more we see God as he is, then we see ourselves as we truly are. The more we see ourselves as we truly are, we are horrified about how sinful we are. And then we will be, we, we, we want to give up or try harder or, or say we're going to do better. But all of that is of no avail because our only hope is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's not what I can do better. It's what Christ did perfectly. It's not my striving. It's what Christ finished. It's not what I'm going to start doing tomorrow. It's what Christ completed 2000 years ago. It's not my sweat. It's his blood. It's not my effort. It's what he completed. That is what we have to remind ourselves of. And, and, and so to really, it's the highest art, not only to be able to understand the proper distinction between law and gospel in your reading and in your teaching, it is the highest art for a Christian to understand the proper distinction between law and gospel in the school of experience in your everyday life. Much more could be said, but I will leave it there because that's exactly how I want these episodes to be. I would rather them be a little shorter. We are like, ooh, that was so good. And then we can add to it as we move through this. But man, that was a rather a very profound segment. I would challenge you to look up Issues ETC. This is part three of their series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Go listen to it. I think if you go to theologycentral.net, Go to the blog section. You have to scroll down a few uh, posts. You should see one there for my uh, for my playlist on Podorama pat, uh, podcasting app. And in that playlist, you'll find part three there, and you can listen to that again. And then you can listen to our discussion again as well. Um, well, you have to look up Theology Central, the podcast for that. But you get it. Get what I'm trying to say. Issues ETC. Listen to what they had to say. All right? And then we'll review the next part. I don't know, maybe later today. I don't know, maybe later this evening. I don't know. We've got a lot of things to do, but there you have it. That's plenty for you to meditate on and think about. But just remember this. I cannot stress this. Just remember this. Your hope is your guilt should drive you to Christ. I I know it's great to believe that your guilt should try to keep you from not sinning anymore. But the reality is you're going to still sin. 
And everyone paints the picture of Psalm 51 that David confessed and never sinned again, but he had eight wives. I don't know. Is that a sin or not? Did he commit any other sins after the sin with Bathsheba? Or are you telling me he never committed another? Come on. We know he kept sinning. So your hope can't be that your sin and guilt will make you stop sinning. Your hope is that your sin will and guilt will lead you to Christ. I know that's a radical, radical, radical thought that's going to create some controversy, but we can discuss it. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a wonderful, wonderful day. And uh, we'll be back with some more live broadcasting some point today. We're going to do at least one more thing today. I can I guarantee you that. All right. I think my food is ready downstairs. So I'm going to go find some food. Everyone have a great day. God bless.